Real Betis. I want to see a team of winners that never give up. I want to see a team where everybody's involved, starting or not starting, where everybody wants to do the job, if it's in its normal position or not. And that's what they did. And West Ham and Brighton beat Freiburg and Marseille respectively to top their groups. That's the latest. I'm Fader Silva. K107 News. If you like Dave who orders his weekly supermarket shop online, or like Sandra who renews her insurance through a comparison site, or even Alan who orders his office supplies online, you can be raising free donations every time you shop. When you shop, renew or order online through easy fundraising, thousands of big brands will donate to organisations like K107FM and it doesn't cost you a penny. Search Easy Fundraising and K107FM and make your money count. This is K107FM. The only station we listen to at the North Pole. And so, Police Scotland says it'll close 29 stations across the country as it launches a redundancy scheme. The move comes days ahead of the Scottish budget, which we're warned is going to be difficult. Perhaps that's preparing us for the worst before revealing a deft hand. The Scottish Government says it's sorry for ambulance waiting times. Eat out to help out. Rishi's dishes come under attack at the Covid inquiry. And the Foreign Secretary tells Hamza Youssef to stick to home affairs. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. Can the Prime Minister please share his Christmas message for children being bombed in Gaza this winter? Yeah, yeah. Prime Minister. No. Mr Speaker, nobody wants to see this conflict go on for a moment longer than necessary. Ambulance waiting times are in the firing line at Holyrood this week. Patients, crews and vehicles are left sitting outside hospitals waiting for a bed. Attending the sick is missing targets on urgent cases. The Deputy First Minister, Shona Robertson, apologises to anyone who's faced a long wait, but she points out similar pressures are being felt right across the UK. It's the lead for Conservative Douglas Ross this week in questions to the First Minister, being taken by the FM's deputy as he's unwell. Figures released yesterday show that one in every ten ambulances in Scotland sat outside hospitals for hours waiting for patients to be admitted. That means in just one week, 700 ambulances across the country were stuck outside hospital for hours. We've heard of reports of ambulances backing up, waiting outside Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, Ayrshire's Crosshouse Hospital and many more. So Deputy First Minister, why are ambulances backed up for hours outside hospitals in Scotland? Deputy First Minister. Uh, just before I answer uh, Douglas Ross's question, I want to begin by putting on record this government's thanks and very best wishes to Mark Drakeford as he steps down as First Minister of Wales and pay tribute to his dedication in many years of public service. And despite our differences on the Constitution, Mark Drakeford has been a friend and ally to Scotland throughout his time as First Minister. He's never shied away from defending devolution 
and of course standing against the devastating effect of Brexit and Tory cuts and working with others to improve cross-government cooperation. Yep. And I wish him all the best for the future. An important question on the Scottish Ambulance Service, which of course continues to experience challenges with uh, waiting times uh, for ambulances in a number of hospital sites across uh, Scotland. And of course, as Douglas Ross uh, spoke about, some uh, are taking uh, longer than they should uh, to turn around at the front door of our hospital. Of course, uh, similar pressures are being felt throughout the UK as we enter into uh, winter pressures. Patient safety remains our top priority and of course I would apologise to anyone uh, who has uh, either experienced any waits for an ambulance to reach them or indeed has had to uh, wait uh, at uh, too long in uh, A&E. I want to also thank our staff who of course are working extremely hard to maintain a, a fast uh, response to our most critically unwell uh, patients. Uh, Scottish Ambulance Service is working hard with health boards to minimise delays and handover times. And of course, as part of the funding for the winter plan, the Scottish Ambulance Service has received an additional £50 million pounds to help address thank you, the increased Cabinet demand Secretary. for thank their you. services going into to Question number two from Douglas Ross. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. And I uh, also wish Mark Drakeford well. I'm sure he's pleased that a mention from the SNP is a positive one, because it's normally a critical one when it suits the SNP's uh, argument. But Shona Robeson was mentioning there uh, that some of... Well, you know... <laughs> Members, let's hear Mr Ross. Members! It's interesting. They don't like to hear it, but they use it every week. Mr. Ross, please ask your question. Thank you. Uh, the Welsh Assembly. Uh, but anyway, the Deputy First Minister was mentioning that some of the waiting times are longer than they should be. So we've done a, an FOI request, and I've got the response here on ambulance waiting times across Scotland. They show some of the worst turnaround times on record. We can reveal that an ambulance was waiting outside a hospital in Ayrshire for 15 hours. Another waited over 10 hours in Grampian and in the Lothian Health Board area waited over 11 hours. This government has known about the problem for years. So why does this scandalous situation keep on happening? Deputy First Minister. Well, as the Cabinet Secretary for Health said earlier on, uh, of course, we are, uh, as part of the winter plan, uh, in funding the Scottish Ambulance Service with an additional £50 million to help address the increased demand for the services going into winter. In addition to that, we are, of course, investing in hospital at home at uh, £12 million to increase capacity to help to keep people away uh, from the front door of our hospitals. The Cabinet Secretary earlier on talked about the, the action being taken at various health board areas, including Grampian, who, of course, uh, are getting uh, their share of the hospital at home capacity and are working hard to address some of the issues that Douglas uh, Ross uh, alluded to. Can I just say one thing, though? Um, the investment that I mentioned, the £50 million pounds, uh, to address the increased demand for the services that have been given to the Scottish Ambulance Service, that is uh, nearly five times the amount of money that the UK Tory government is giving for health in its entirety for the budget next year. 
So we will continue to address some of the very serious concerns here. And the Cabinet Secretary for Health had the annual review with the Scottish Ambulance Service yesterday, where many of these issues were addressed. But it does, it's a bit rich for Douglas Ross to come to this chamber talking about the performance of our Scottish Ambulance Service, or indeed our health service more generally, when they have singularly Thank you, failed Secretary. to provide Thank any you, funding Secretary. for our health service. Douglas Ross. That, that's just not true. I don't know how many times the Deputy First Minister is going to come to this Parliament and make statements that are incorrect. But she referenced what the Cabinet Secretary mentioned earlier in response to Douglas Lumsden on ambulance waiting times. And the Cabinet Secretary mentioned something that the Deputy First Minister didn't. He mentioned the challenge of delayed discharge. And I wonder why Shona Robeson didn't want to mention delayed discharge in her answer. Could it be that when she was Health Secretary, eight years ago, she promised to eradicate delayed discharge completely. That is a consequence of her failure and the government's failure to deliver on that pledge. Now, our FOI has also unco uncovered some shocking ambulance response times. Purple calls involve the most life-threatening, dangerous situation for patients. Half of the patients in that category have had a cardiac arrest, and these calls have a target response time of six minutes. Yet our FOI request reveals that some patients are waiting more than half an hour and others are waiting ten times longer than the target. So, Deputy First Minister, why should anyone whose heart has stopped be waiting so long for an ambulance to arrive? Deputy First Minister. Well, first of all, on delayed discharge, uh, I absolutely recognise the impact of delayed discharge, which is why, of course, the Cabinet Secretary for Health is working very closely with uh, local authorities and health boards in order to address the impact that delayed uh, discharge has. Uh, on, in terms of the, the, the point that Douglas Ross made around those most urgent uh, category calls, uh, it is absolutely important that those calls are responded to as quickly as possible. And of course, in, the, in most cases they are, but I accept, as I set out at the beginning, it is not acceptable if someone is waiting uh, too long for uh, those uh, calls. The median response for purple calls uh, was, uh, in the, the performance information uh, with the week ending uh, 10th of December, the median response for purple calls was 7 minutes 32 seconds and for red 9 minutes 25 seconds. I accept that is too long, and I accept there will be people waiting outside of those uh, times. What I will say, though, is that the investment that has been made in our Scottish Ambulance Service and in our health service is absolutely not down to any of the resources that are being given to us by the UK government. Douglas Ross said earlier on about the investment in public services. I have it in black and white that next year, all the, um, inf the money that is coming from the UK government for health amounts to £10.8 million. That is enough for five hours' capacity in the NHS. And actually, it was only for smoking cessation. Thank it you, Deputy First Minister. For frontline services. Douglas Ross. So I don't think Douglas Ross Douglas should come Ross. and lecture us here. I call Douglas Ross.
The UK Government has provided the biggest ever block grant to the Scottish Government to deliver for public services here in Scotland, and it's a failure by the SNP Government and the SNP Ministers that is having an impact on patients. The Deputy First Minister speaks about them waiting a few minutes longer than the target. Some are waiting over an hour for a purple category call. That is unacceptable. And this isn't just impacting the patients. This morning, I spoke to a paramedic who wishes to remain anonymous. He told us staff morale is at an all-time low. He described waiting in ambulances for more than five hours some days with unwell patients in freezing temperatures. He said paramedics want to do more for their patients, but staff are considering leaving because the situation is unsustainable. He said the Scottish Government's latest funding programme was supposed to ensure the right resources in the right place at the right time. But he wants to know how that can possibly be effective when he and his colleagues are sitting outside hospitals unable to get in. Systematic problems are preventing frontline staff from giving patients the treatment they deserve. So what does the Deputy First Minister have to say to disillusioned NHS staff about this crisis? Deputy First Minister. Well, we take the views of our frontline staff uh, very seriously indeed. And of course, that's one of the reasons that the Cabinet Secretary for Health, uh, when uh, he is doing the annual reviews, uh, usually, as, as when I was Health Secretary, we meet the frontline staff and hear their views as he did uh, yesterday with the Scottish Ambulance Service. What I can say to Douglas Ross is that Scottish Ambulance Service staffing is up 50% under this government. Uh, and we have record levels of investment in our health service, including in our Scottish Ambulance Service. That is in stark contrast to the real terms cut that the UK Tory government is giving the Department of Health in England, a real terms cut. And that, of course, flows through, flows through to the resources that this government has available for our health service if we were to follow the Tory choices. 10.8 million for our health service. Well, we, of course, will not follow UK Tory spending plans and we will make sure we protect our health service and our Scottish Ambulance Service going forward. If Labour's Anas Sarwar is frustrated by hospital and ambulance waiting times, which he is, he's furious about the plight of Scotland's homeless. And he says the Scottish Government could do so much more to help. Thank you, Deputy Minister. Can I start by thanking the Deputy First Minister for her kind words about Mark Drakeford, who helped shape devolution over the last 25 years and has been a dedicated servant to the people of Wales. Presiding officer, we also send our condolences to the family of Hanzala Malik. He served the people of Glasgow for over 25 years as a Labour councillor and as an MSP. He was a champion for equality and he had friends right across the political spectrum. <laughs> Deputy President, Officer, people across the country are preparing for Christmas. It is a special time, but for many it comes at the end of a year filled with anxiety about their family finances. Over the past year, we have seen a 30% increase in the number of families at risk of losing the homes they own and being made homeless. Now, that is a direct result of a mortgage crisis caused by Tory economic chaos. But the Scottish Government has a mortgage support scheme, but it seems in name only, because in reality it has not supported anyone since 2015. And the Scottish Government has committed to a review by the end of the financial year, but that's in April when people are losing their homes right now. So why won't the government stop the delay and support families before they lose their homes? 
Deputy First Minister. Well, can I first of all echo Anis Sarwar's comments about the sad and sudden news of Hanzala Malik's death. He was a, a true champion of his Glasgow community and our thoughts are with his family and uh, his many friends. Um, can I also uh, agree with Anis Sarwar that many families are experiencing uh, real pressure, not just at Christmas, but have throughout the year as the the Tory-caused uh, cost-of-living crisis continues uh, to bite and affect their household finances. And, of course, it was due to the economic uh, catastrophe of Liz Truss's mini-budget that has caused many of those mortgages to be sky-high due to increased interest rates. In terms of our support, um, over the last year, of course, we... It spent around £3 billion of Scottish Government resources in supporting household budgets, the main one being, of course, our investment in Scottish child payment. And, of course, we will continue through our welfare funds and other measures, discretionary housing payments, to try to support household budgets going forward. In terms of those uh, supports for people with mortgages specifically, um, we will continue to look at what more we can do, and I'm happy to update Anis Sarwar in due course about that. Anis Sarwar. Thank you, Deputy President. Officer. The government has a mortgage support scheme. People are losing their homes right now and being forced to go homeless, and the government is going to continue to look at how it's going to implement that mortgage support scheme. What is the point of having the scheme if it's not going to support people right now when they're in such difficulty? Because every family that loses their home risks joining the almost 30,000 families who are currently homeless in Scotland. Over 15,000 families across the country are staying in temporary accommodation right now, many of them in hostels, B&Bs and hotel rooms. And shockingly, that means 9,500 children will wake up on Christmas morning without a home to call their own. On average, families with children spend 347 days in temporary accommodation. That's almost a year. In some places, that is even higher. In Glasgow, it is 381 days. In Midlothian, it's 483 days. And here in Edinburgh, it is 611 days. That is 20 months homeless and living in temporary accommodation. So, Deputy First Minister, aren't you ashamed of that figure? And how have you allowed it to get this bad? Deputy First Minister. Oh, let me come on to the issue of... of the important issue of temporary accommodation uh, in a moment. Um, we are supporting household incomes beyond actually many of the areas that we have devolved competence for. That £3 billion that I mentioned earlier on, of course, seeks to address things like the bedroom tax, which uh, I'm not sure if uh, Anna Sauer's uh, Westminster Party have uh, decided that they will uh, get rid of the bedroom tax. But these are pressures. These are pressures that come on the Scottish budget for things that we have to mitigate. And I'm going to be honest, we cannot mitigate everything because we don't have the resources to do so. But on the important issue of temporary accommodation, we are committed and are acting on the recommendations of the expert temporary accommodation task and finish group, which of course was co-chaired with Shelter. And we're investing at least £60 million this year through the Affordable Housing Supply Programme to support a national acquisition plan 
We're working with social landlords to deliver a new programme of stock management and we're implementing targeted plans with local authorities facing the greatest pressure backed by additional resources. And of course, a transition to rapid rehousing is the best way to reduce the use of temporary accommodation in the longer term. And we remain wholly committed to rapid rehousing and future budgets, of course, will be set out next week, which will confirm that. It's frankly a shocking answer after 16 years of an SNP government and there are people sleeping rough in our streets across the country. We have a housing emergency in Scotland, something that this SNP government fails to recognise. 30,000 homeless households in our country and that's the answer we get. 15,000 families in temporary accommodation, 9,500 children without a home, some in hostels, B&Bs and hotels. 110,000 families on a housing waiting list. A child being homeless in Scotland every 45 seconds. We desperately need more homes, but this SNP government cut the housing budget by more than a quarter, and now new housing starts are down 24%. This government's incompetence has consequences. Now, they might not want to hear my word for it, but this is what Alison Watson, Director of Shelter Scotland, says about the effect of the SNP's choices. It means that an already devastating housing emergency will get worse and continue to devastate lives. So, Deputy First Minister, how many more families need to be made homeless before this SNP government takes responsibility for the crisis they have created? Deputy First Minister. So, we are uh, taking action. Of course, that's why we have a housing uh, plan of £3.5 billion of investment over the course of this Parliament to deliver 110,000 more homes by 2032. It's why, of course, we have in Scotland the strongest rights across the UK nations for people experiencing homeless. And it's why, of course, we're taking action that I laid out on, on tackling temporary uh, accommodation. And we know, of course, that one of the pressures on temporary accommodation is the Home Office's fast-track asylum process, which is placing, of course, Glasgow City Council in particular yeah. under unprecedented pressure and risk uh, pushing people into destitution. So we will continue to invest in housing and invest in tackling homelessness. What would be good to hear, though, from the Labour Party is whether Rachel Reeves is to be believed when she is saying that there's going to be no additional funding for public services and that we should lower our expectations that anything will change from the terrible uh, resource settlement that we've had from this Tory government. So we'll wait and see, because I would welcome any commitment to housing investment made by Rachel Reeves or any other Labour spokesperson. I might wait a long time, though, presiding officer. I'll have more from the Chamber here at Holyrood later. First to London and the continuing UK COVID inquiry. This week, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has been criticised for appearing forgetful on some details. Some events during the pandemic have slipped his memory and he can't recall them. His key project, Eat Out to Help Out, may have helped save jobs and businesses, but it's come under fire for potentially contributing to a rise in the number of COVID cases. From ITV News, here's Robert Peston. A serving Prime Minister about to appear in front of a judge. Did you ignore the advice? And in question is whether, to save businesses and the economy, he put us in harm's way. I swear by the Gita that the evidence I shall give. That the I shall give. As for that evidence, well, there's not quite as much of it as you might have thought. And nothing but the truth. You don't now have access to any of the WhatsApps that you did send during the time of the crisis, do you? 
No, the, uh, I don't. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years, and as that has happened, the messages have not come across. And for a detailed politician, there's quite a lot he's somehow forgotten. No, I, I don't recall. I mean, I don't recall, and I don't recall. I can't specifically recall. I can't recall the exact discussions. But surely he remembers how shambolic it all was under Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. The administration described privately as brutal and useless or criminally incompetent or operationally chaotic. I don't think any of those uh, comments were, were shared with me at the time. You, you made a, a point, though, Mr Keith, is that debates raged. I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing. The big question is why the then-Chancellor spent £840 million on subsidising our meals in cafes and restaurants in the summer of 2020, the eat-out-to-help-out scheme which some government advisers say risked our health. Hospitality had been deemed to be safe to reopen with a considerable, as I said, hundreds of pages of guidance. But you never raised it at all with anybody outside number 10. Because, as would be completely normal for all economic policy before fiscal events, that's long-standing practice it always has been so. Do you acknowledge that the evidence from Professor Chris Whitty, Professor Sir Patrick Valance, Professor Sir Jonathan Van Tam is unanimous that had they been consulted, they would have advised it was highly likely to increase transmission? But they've not said that to me. Uh, I've not seen that. And as I said, they had ample opportunity to raise those concerns so what about the circuit-breaking lockdown that never happened in September 2020 and the lockdown that did happen in November? Because, of course, you would be violently opposed to a lockdown. That's not a fair characterisation of my position. I was opposed to a circuit-breaker in September because I didn't think it would have achieved its stated objectives. What was your position, Mr Sunak, by the 30th of October in relation to the lockdown decision of the 4th of November? Uh, I, I, as the minutes show, though, I didn't, I didn't oppose it at the end of uh, into November. I didn't oppose that lockdown. But what I can tell you that it was reasonable to believe at the end of October that the regional approach may still work. That was a reasonable belief. Now, obviously, it turned out not to be right with the benefit of hindsight. What's the verdict of those outside the hearing suffering the trauma from the deaths of loved ones? Many of us participated in that and went out, met friends and had dinner and so on. Uh, would we have done so if we'd known that the chief medical officer at the time had dubbed the scheme Eat, Help, Eat Out to Help Out the Virus? Remember how proud he was of Rishi's dishes? Were we being served? Well, he still thinks so, but the inquiry's judge is yet to make her ruling. Hello. Robert Peston, ITV News. Politics change but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out, the ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Hollywood home. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood with Charles Fletcher and coming up in the next half hour... Stick to home affairs, not foreign affairs, says David Cameron. And we go back into the chamber to continue questions to the Deputy First Minister. 
Foreign Secretary is warning the Scottish Government to stick to home affairs instead of seeking out meetings with senior politicians and dignitaries overseas. Lord Cameron, the former Prime Minister David Cameron, says Hamza Yusuf and his team must not set up tete-a-tetes abroad without one of his colleagues from the Foreign Office. Here's Scotland's External Affairs Secretary, Angus Robertson. No Scottish Government minister has or would purport to speak for the United Kingdom or to reach agreements which commit the UK. In fact, I asked James cleverly for any examples of such a thing. He said he had none. We invite FCDO officials to attend our formal meetings. It's impossible to predict where and when informal meetings will happen during large-scale events like COP28, and to threaten Scotland's interests on the basis of these discussions arranged at pace is ridiculous. The engagement, presiding officer, that Scotland undertakes with our international partners plays a key role in helping to attract inward investment and to promote brand Scotland. That is now being uh, threatened by an unelected lord for the sake of the UK's politics of insecurity and petulance. So does the Cabinet Secretary agree that regardless of one's view on the Constitution, anyone who cares about the standing of this Parliament should recognise and call out this attempt at muzzling Scotland's elected institutions. Well, anyone in doubt of the benefits of um, our work overseas should take a look at the report on the work of Scotland's international network, which highlights the real benefits being delivered to Scotland now. And trying to limit that work will only reduce the opportunities for Scottish businesses, cultural organisations and individuals and in so doing, impact negatively on the lives of us all. Supplementary, Donald Cameron. While Scottish ministers clearly have a role to play in promoting Scotland abroad, that should never infringe on the devolution settlement, which of course reserves foreign affairs to the UK government. And by meeting with President Erdogan, of all people, to discuss foreign policy, namely the situation in the Middle East, the First Minister acted against both the spirit and letter of an established protocol that requires FCDO official attendance and is crucially a requirement that applies equally to UK ministers as it does to Scottish ministers. So can I ask him this? Given that his government's own annual report highlighted a number of good examples of joint international working by officials from Scotland's two governments, where FCDO support has been critical, will he now give a firm commitment that all future Scottish Government meetings with overseas officials will have a representative from the Foreign Office present. <clears throat> so, uh, Donald Cameron, Cameron has brought up the, the letter of uh, the law, and the Scotland Act states very clearly, so let, let me quote again to the Chamber what it says, the reservation of international relations does not have the effect of precluding the Scottish ministers and officials from communicating with other countries, regions, or international or European institutions, so long as the representatives of the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish ministers do not purport to speak to the United, for the United Kingdom or to reach agreements which commit the UK. I have always, I have always been happy to be accompanied by uh, representatives of the UK embassies or high commissions whenever I undertake international meetings. That is the position of the Scottish Government. It's unfortunately that FCDO officials sometimes do not make themselves available. Scott Secretary Alistair Jack insists the Scottish Government must work within its remit under the Scotland Act and focus on devolved issues like health. This is the protocol for all of us. 
they must have an official, a civil servant from the Foreign Office present to take notes. The so Scottish there could be no confusions. Well, the Scottish Government don't accept that because the, the reason the 16th of October letter was sent by James Cleverley, which may not have come into the public domain, made it very clear that they resisted that on the First Minister's meeting with the Icelandic Prime Minister. Uh, it, and that's why the first letter went on the 16th of October. This follow-up letter is because the, the First Minister in COP, in his agenda, chose to meet uh, someone who the, the UK government didn't believe should be met, which was the President of Turkey, Erdogan, you know the story, you know there. The, if, the, the meeting, if the, 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 the warning to the Foreign Office was given very last minute. There wasn't time for the, for the Foreign Office official to get there, but there was time for the First Minister to get there, so they must have known about the meeting a little bit more in advance. But it wasn't the only offence. No, 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 I must make this point, because you're making out it was a one-off. There was a, the, without Foreign Office officials present, there was a meeting with Ursula von der Leyen, Charles Michel, the, pri the, the Prime Minister of Lebanon, and the acting Prime Minister of Pakistan. All of, so there were five different people, occasions where meetings happened, for, meetings happened with foreign ministers without a, an official from... And it's not, it's not complicated. If, if there aren't to be any sanctions, all the Scottish Government have to do is take foreign office officials to their meetings. That's all we're asking, which is, uh, is incumbent on me and every other minister in the United Kingdom, and everyone else seems to be able to do it. Right. What the, the First Minister says... The meeting with Edrahan, which you reference, I, yeah. I, I don't think the, the other meetings which you mentioned... Are well, not, another four, yeah. Well, not in, in, the, in the Lord Cameron's letter. No, so no, no, but what, kept, no, that's in, because in, I kept them up my sleeve for you today, to Mr the Chairman. the pertinent meeting, this hmm? is what is said. Is, the First Minister said it was arranged, rearranged at short notice by the President's team. The FCDO office chose not to stay with the Scottish delegation the whole yeah, day. I heard that. And I because heard of that, they ended up missing the meeting. Do you I, well, I, well, I, well I, I, I heard that. And, and you don't accept I, it. Well, as Her Majesty once said, recollections may vary. I, what I would say is this the, I've heard for the, from directly from the Foreign Office what they feel happened. And I've also added another four, which I kept fresh for you today. Uh, Will you give details of this to the committee? Well, so you we don't need them. details for the committee. All you need to do is go to the First Minister's uh, X or Twitter, or whatever they call it these days, account, and they're all there, photographic evidence. Enjoy it at your leisure. Surely it's the nature of these international meetings. No, no that's not how the rules work. There is You're a protocol... that the Scottish Government rearranged these meetings with these people that you say are now going to be included in further correspondence no, no, there will be no further correspondence. You're putting words into my mouth. There will be no further correspondence. The correspondence is there. It's very clear. The Scottish Government, if they want to be, have facilitation and logistical support and everything else overseas, then they must have a, a, an official from the Foreign Office present at those meetings. That is incumbent, and that is incumbent upon all ministers from the United Kingdom, irrespective of they're a minister in a devolved administration or they're a minister for the United Kingdom government. Those are the rules. And all we're asking is that they stick to the rules that everyone else sticks to. It's not complicated, and it shouldn't be that difficult. And just lastly, so you, this, you are serious about this threat to withdraw Scottish government of officials from UK embassies and high commissions. That's a serious and live threat that you've put forward, yeah? Well, it's very clear in the letter. In the Commons, MPs have had their final session of questions to the Prime Minister before breaking up for Christmas recess next week. But it's no time for Christmas cheer from the SNP leader at Westminster, Stephen Flynn. SNP leader Stephen Flynn. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can the Prime Minister please share his Christmas message for children being bombed in Gaza this winter? Mr. Speaker, nobody wants to see this conflict go on for a moment longer than necessary. We urgently need more humanitarian pauses to get all the hostages out and to get life-saving aid into Gaza to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinian people. And we have been consistent that we support what is a sustainable ceasefire, which means Hamas must stop launching rockets into Israel and release all the hostages. Mr Speaker, if the current actions of the Israeli government continue, then it is estimated that almost 1,400 more children will die between now and Christmas Day. Now, in the United Nations last night, our friends and allies in France, in Ireland, in Canada, in Spain and in Australia, they joined with 148 other nations to vote with courage, care and compassion for a ceasefire. The UK, they shamefully abstained. How can the Prime Minister possibly explain why 153 nations are wrong, yet Westminster is right? Mr Speaker, as I have said consistently, we are deeply concerned about the devastating impact of the fighting in Gaza on the civilian population. Too many people have lost their lives already, and this is something that we have stressed, and I have stressed personally to Prime Minister Netanyahu just last week. What we are doing practically is to get more aid into Gaza, Mr Speaker. The Foreign Secretary is appointing a UK humanitarian coordinator, and in my conversations last week with Prime Minister Netanyahu, I pressed him on opening up the Karem Shalom crossing so that more aid can flow in, and we are actively exploring the opportunity for maritime corridors, something that the UK is well placed to lead, and I can give him my assurance that we will work night and day to get more aid to those who desperately need it. That's a warm welcome back into the chamber here at Holyrood as we join the Deputy Presiding Officer Annabelle Ewing for continuing this week's session of questions to the First Minister, taken, of course, this week by the Deputy First Minister, Shona Robertson. Here's Annabelle Ewing. Question number three, Liz Smith. To ask the Deputy First Minister whether the Scottish Government will commit to any reform of Scotland's planning regulations in order to generate growth as recommended by CBI Scotland on the 7th of December. Deputy First Minister. So planning is uh, crucial for delivering the development and infrastructure that we will need to achieve a a fairer and greener economy. We have already made significant progress in planning reform, including the adoption of National Planning Framework 4 and a new system of local development planning earlier this year. Our reforms are now focusing on working with industry and local authorities to ensure the new system does all it can to support the delivery of good quality development. As a priority, we are preparing to publish a consultation early next year on opportunities for improving resources and planning authorities. Uh, Thank you. The First Minister was at COP28 uh, last week promoting Scotland's green leadership potential. But the Deputy First Minister will know that the average offshore wind project in Scotland still takes around 12 years to deliver. And she knows too that there are substantial concerns amongst business and industry about the complexity of Scotland's current planning regulations and the lengthy delays for consenting processes. So can I ask what the Scottish Government is doing to speed up the timescales for these critical projects in order to unlock billions of pounds of investment 
that will stimulate the economic growth that Scotland so desperately needs. Deputy First Minister. Uh, well, can I say to, to Liz Smith that we, of course, have uh, got a very clear plan around cutting consenting at times for onshore uh, wind developments, and we are looking at what more can be done around uh, offshore uh, developments, because these are absolutely crucial for uh, Scotland's economy going forward. I uh, met with uh, CBI last week, I think it was, um, where they raised some of these issues around uh, planning uh, consents, and uh, we agreed to uh, continue to discuss what ways might be found uh, in partnership uh, with businesses and others to uh, work on proposals that could help to address some of these uh, issues, and we'll continue to do that. And supplementary, Daniel Johnson. Uh, thank you, Deputy Presiding Officer. It is striking when you have conversations with business, regardless of sector, regardless of type, the fact that the discussion inevitably comes back to planning. That's particularly true in renewables, whereas Liz Smith points out they will highlight the length of time ranging from 7 to 12 years. By comparison, the same projects, they state, will take as little as two years to get through the planning consenting regime in places such as Norway. So is the Scottish Government looking at international best practice and will it seek to benchmark our planning processes against our key competitors uh, in the renewables space? Deputy First Minister. Yes, I can say to Daniel Johnson, of course, uh, we will continue to uh, look at that and look at where there's best practice uh, internationally. I, I think that is the right thing to do. Daniel Johnson will appreciate some of the complexities around uh, many of these applications, and that's why, of course, some of them uh, take uh, too long. Uh, there is uh, an issue about capacity within the planning system, and that's what we're looking to address. That was really the question that Liz Smith was alluding to and those were the issues that were raised in my meetings with businesses also. So we'll continue to look at how we can make progress and I'll be happy to make sure the Chamber is updated as we do so. Question number four, Kevin Stewart. Uh, thank you, President Officer. To ask the Deputy First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking to grow the green economy. Deputy First Minister. The global transition to net zero offers enormous economic opportunities. Scotland has strengths and potential in sectors ranging from wind, hydrogen, renewable heat and advanced manufacturing to data and financial services. Our green industrial strategy will set out how we will support businesses and investors to have confidence to make decisions and invest in Scotland and realise these economic opportunities. The green industrial strategy complements our sectoral just transition plans, which focus on securing a fair transition to net zero for specific high-emitting sectors of the economy. Kevin Stewart. Uh, thank you, President Officer. The PwC Green Jobs Barometer report uh, published this week found Scotland to be one of only two areas to record an increase in green job adverts from 22 to 23, while the UK as a whole saw a 29% decrease. The number of green employment opportunities in Scotland will increase, but what concerns does the Deputy First Minister have regarding the recent illogical Tory net zero U-turns and the harm that this will have on Scotland's future energy jobs growth. Deputy First Minister. Can I uh, join uh, Kevin Stewart in welcoming the positive findings of the jobs uh, barometer? It shows that Scotland is already leading the way in delivering a, a green jobs revolution and unlocking the tremendous potential 
uh, that our energy transition uh, has. This government stands squarely behind uh, businesses and investors who are realising the opportunities of green growth in Scotland and we share uh, an ambition uh, to build a green, fair and growing economy. My only regret is that we continue to be constrained by the current fiscal settlement and, of course, the policies of this UK government. And the recent autumn statement, of course, delivers a worst-case scenario for Scotland with a real-terms cut to our capital budget, undermining our ability to invest in Scotland's renewable future. But the message is, of course, that Scotland is open for business and we welcome investment. Absolutely. Supplementary, Morris Golden. Thank you, Deputy Presiding Officer. Last December, I highlighted the fact that Scotland's circular economy was just 1.3% circular, the worst which was surveyed. The former Net Zero Secretary assured me urgent action was being taken that would, and I quote, drive forward change in the years ahead. So 12 months on from that promise, can the Deputy First Minister update the Chamber is Scotland's economy now more than 1.3% circular? Deputy First Minister. Well, of course, the Minister will bring forward the Circular Economy Bill in the new year, which will help to address and make sure that the circular economy opportunities are, um, are gathered as, as much as they can within, of course, an environment where uh, Maurice Golden's uh, government is standing in absolutely the opposite direction than we need them to do. And those policies impact on uh, our ability to attract investment here because international investors will hear a very different message from the UK uh, government on renewable opportunities. So I think that is very uh, concerning uh, indeed. And hopefully with Maurice Golden's comments, um, I'm sure uh, we can be assured of his support for the Circular Economy Bill when it comes here in the new year. And supplementary, Maggie Chapman. Thank you. We know that connectivity is vital to securing and sustaining resilient green, local and regional economies. The campaign for North East Rail's Connect Our Coast plans and other public transport infrastructure will be crucial to ensure regeneration and community well-being, as well as reducing carbon emissions. Can the Deputy First Minister provide an update on strategic support and planning for transport infrastructure to support the green economy, especially in the North East? Deputy First Minister. Uh, well, can I say to Maggie Chapman, she raises some important issues and what I'll do is make sure that the Minister uh, writes to her with an update uh, as quickly as possible. Question number five, Rosa Grant. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to a recent report by Highland Council which reportedly warns of a significant risk of parts of its region being drained of people. Deputy First Minister. Well, I welcome strong local leadership in responding to this complex and varied challenge, including this report from Highland Council. Our forthcoming Addressing Depopulation Action Plan has been developed following extensive engagement with local authorities, COSLA and regional partners. It will establish a new programme of work to be taken forward alongside local and regional partners to ensure sustainable communities, economies and public services. Rosa Grant. Homes are needed to retain populations, yet the government's promised priority for rural housing also includes commuter towns. Council's report tells us that the cost of building a standard two- or three-bedroomed property in Highland exceeds £400,000. The government grant for council house building is less than £98,000. 
Depopulation leads to service breakdown. In many rural areas, there are no available home care for elderly people. Does the Deputy First Minister agree that this government's intervention has been totally inadequate to date, and will she now act to save these communities? Deputy First Minister. Well, I, I, I don't accept uh, that analysis. What I do accept is that there are challenges uh, within uh, rural communities, whether it's on uh, rural housing, which of course is why we've brought forward the Rural and Islands Housing Action Plan, because we know that part of the solution is ensuring that people can remain living within rural communities and indeed that there is housing there for people to move to uh, when they take up opportunities uh, to, uh, to work. And that's why, of course, we're providing up to £25 million from the affordable housing budget over the next five years to support housing for key workers. Uh, the, the member mentioned uh, the care sector and of course that is one of the key sectors that we would want that uh, funding to support. So we recognise all of these issues which is why of course uh, I'm committed and working with Mary Goujon with the Rural uh, Delivery Plan to bring all of these areas from across government into one place and give renewed focus to making sure that we have coherence and focus in delivering for rural Scotland. Supplementary, Edward Mountain. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, last year, less than 5% of Caithness mums gave birth in Caithness. Over 200 had to travel to Inverness. Highland councillors are likely to declare a school's emergency because schools like Charleston Academy are collapsing. The government has ignored spending money in the Highlands on capital infrastructure. This catastrophic lack of funding is the real reason why there is a population drain. Surely it's time for this government to invest in the Highlands and start by duelling the A9 right now. Deputy First Minister. Of course, what Edward Mountain didn't mention was the new National Treatment Centre in Inverness, the new uh, hospital in Broadford, uh, and of course we will set out our plans for the A9, as uh, the Minister didn't mention was the new National Treatment Centre in Inverness, the new uh, hospital in Broadford, uh, and of course we will set out our plans for the A9, as uh, the Minister... Would the Deputy First Minister join with me in calling out the hypocrisy of the Labour Party who raised the issue of depopulation while supporting Brexit, aligning with the Tories and supporting restrictions on immigration and failing to join with the SNP in calling for the devolution of immigration powers so Scotland can take all the necessary actions to address depopulation. And um, Deputy First Minister to respond as regards the matters within the government's jurisdiction? Yeah, well, of course, I do absolutely agree that the hypocrisy from the Labour Party is breathtaking. Uh, of course, the, the Labour Party that is now supporting the Brexit uh, plans that have helped to ensure that our industries across the Highlands are struggling to recruit workers and has had a devastating impact on our economy. And, of course, uh, that the... A devastating impact is also in the face of us not having the power over migration measures that we would want to have in order to help yeah. with some of these depopulation issues. We have um, su suggested, for example, a rural visa pilot yeah. that has cross-party support across this chamber. But um, the intransigence and, uh, of the UK Tory government that will not listen even to the most modest of suggestions, I think just... Uh, basically um, says all there is to say about the parties here not really caring about rural Scotland at all. Question number six, Julian Mackay. 
to ask the Deputy First Minister what assessment the Scottish Government has made of the social benefit of extending free bus travel to all under 22s. Deputy First Minister. Well, I'm very uh, happy to see that over 100 million journeys have now uh, been made by under 22s across Scotland. Uh, this is a scheme that is making a real positive difference to the lives of our young people and their families. Just today, the year one evaluation of the young person's free bus travel scheme was published, showing positive progress in embedding sustainable travel behaviour in young people, opening up new social, education, leisure and educational opportunities, and reducing household costs to help children, particularly those living in poverty. Gillian uh, Mackay. I thank the Deputy First Minister for that answer. When Scottish Green MSPs first secured government support for free bus travel for young people in 2020, we did so because we believed that it would have a transformative impact. The first evaluation report published today makes clear that these benefits are now real. It's opening up our country for young people accessing leisure, work, education and support. And it's making a difference for young people, especially young women, travelling safely at night and helping to develop an affinity with bus travel that will last a lifetime. So can I ask the Deputy First Minister what more the Scottish Government can do to ensure that even more young people are able to secure those same benefits? Deputy First Minister. Well, as uh, Gillian Mackay points out, the evaluation is showing increased numbers of young people travelling by bus. Over a third of cardholders surveyed accessing new opportunities and many families are reporting cost savings and reduced worry and anxiety about travel. The point Gillian Mackay also makes about young women is a, a very, very important point in being able to travel safely at night. So we will continue to look at what more can be done uh, in this area and happy to work with Gillian Mackay and others as we take that forward. We will now move to constituency and general questions. I call Colette Stevenson. Presiding officer, the UK government has just announced the closure of its Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office in East Kilbride. Following a hard-fought campaign by local workers and their trade unions, we managed to keep HMRC in the town, so it beggars belief that the UK government will instead remove 1,000 jobs from my constituency by relocating another department. Local staff are worried about this decision, a hammer blow to East Kilbride that could cost the town's economy £30 million, according to the UK government's own figures. Does the Deputy First Minister agree with me that this is another broken promise to my constituents from the 2014 referendum campaign? And can she set out the Scottish Government's reaction to this announcement from the department headed by the unelected Tory, Tory Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron? This is The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher. Deputy First Minister. Well, I know that many FCDO, I know that many FCDO staff. Well, I'm, I, I think it's appalling that the Tories. Deputy First Minister, please assume your seat. Members, I will not have all this mm. argument across the chamber from secretary positions. It is discourteous to the person who has the floor. The person who has the floor is the Deputy First Minister, and we must hear her response. Deputy First Minister. Well, I think the people of East Kilbride will draw their own conclusions when they hear the Tories laughing about the loss of a thousand jobs. In our 
I, I know that many FCDO staff living and working in East Kilbride will be shocked and concerned by the decision to close the office at Abercrombie House and by the disappointing way that the UK Government chose to announce uh, the news. Of course, the, the former Foreign Secretary also promised 500 more civil service jobs at uh, the FCDO in East Kilbride by 2025. So it is disappointing that the UK Government is now reneging on that promise to boost uh, the local economy. Uh, so we'll uh, con con continue to seek clarity from the UK Government and assurances that there will be no compulsory redundancies as a result of this decision. But it is very disappointing for the people of East Kilbride. I call Jamie Halcrow-Johnson, who is joining us online. Mr Halcrow-Johnson. Thank you. Um, a motion in front of Highland Council today from my Conservative colleague, Councillor Helen Crawford, highlights the poor state of many Highland schools. If passed, it will declare a school state, a state emergency in Highland, call for extra resources from the Scottish Government to urgently address some of the problems, and would invite the Education Secretary to come before Highland Council to listen to concerns over funding shortfalls. So can I ask the Deputy First Minister and Finance Secretary, does she recognise the serious situation in Highland schools and the impacts it's having on pupils, parents and staff? And how will her SNP government respond if a school state emergency is declared in SNP-led Highland today? Deputy First Minister. Well, in addition to getting, I'll ask the Education Secretary to write to Jamie Halcrow uh, Johnson, but I can uh, tell the member that through phase one, uh, of the, the two billion uh, learning estate investment programme, the Scottish Government uh, awarded the Highland Council with funding of nearly uh, 37 million towards their 10, uh, 3 to 18 campus project through phase two, uh, providing the Council with significant funding uh, for uh, Broadford Primary School and Nairn Academy, Academy projects. Um, and of course, in addition, through the previous 1.8 billion Scotland Schools for Future programme, we awarded the Council with funding of over £63 million, uh, towards five school projects. I guess I would make the point I've made to other uh, Tory members during this session of FMQs that if Tory members really care about investment in our infrastructure, why are they allowing their UK Tory government to cut our capital budgets by 10% over the next five years? Perhaps they should have a word. And that's The Week in Holyrood from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me again at the same time next week, if you will, or at a time of your own choosing on SoundCloud or Replay. Aye, Online at k107.co.uk and on air at 107FM. This is K107 News. From the Sky News Centre at 10. Police investigating the disappearance of a British boy who's been found in France say they're working with authorities to bring him home as soon as possible. It's believed Alex Batty was abducted by his mother while on holiday in Spain six years ago. The now 17-year-old was found near Toulouse. Chris Sykes from Greater Manchester Police says Alex has spoken to his grandmother.